Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When Megan Rolfe moved to Lake Louise, Alberta, she found herself isolated and alone. She already struggled with her mental health, and the move made it worse, and she turned to a psychologist. But without private coverage, she had to pay out of her own pocket. For very short sessions, it became quite expensive, anywhere from uh, $120 for a uh, 50-minute session to close to 200 and working in hospitality, you don't really have the income to support that. It was also anywhere from uh, four weeks to eight weeks wait. I think I ended up just dealing with it a lot longer than I needed to instead of getting the help that I could have gotten. It just, it really discouraged the motivation to even try. Megan now has benefits at work, but they don't cover everything. My therapy sessions nowadays are about $200 for a 50-minute session. I do have some covered at work, but it's very easy for that to get used up even in three sessions. For people who are in dire straits and need some more support, it's very difficult to be able to financially take that on and to get the help you need. Still, Megan says having some therapy paid for is better than nothing, and it's made a big difference. The big part of mental health is the journey. You're not going to get over it in one session or after a month of taking some medications. It is a continuous effort. But when you know that you have different people that you can work with, it makes you feel more motivated to keep going. Accessibility equals better quality of life and uh, more encouragement to never give up on myself. According to recent Statistics Canada data, 5 million Canadians have a mental health disorder and only about half of them receive any professional help. That has advocates calling for a universal publicly funded mental health care system. Glenn Brimacombe is a health economist and the chair of public affairs for the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. He's here in the Ottawa studio with me. Good morning. Good morning. How familiar is Megan Rolfe's story when you hear it? Uh, Unfortunately, it's a very common story that we hear in terms of Canadians not having the ability to have full access for the full dose, so to speak, of psychotherapy or talk therapies or whatever they need in the mental health space. And it often affects Uh, individuals who are in lower income brackets or marginalized communities who have more difficulty, especially if if they have to pay out of pocket in terms of getting care. Mm -hmm. And what do we know about the number of Canadians who are living with a mental illness? Uh, Well, we we know effectively what you said, that we have one in five that are suffering and more and more the data is pointing to one in four. We also know... uh, coming out of COVID, that the prevalence of anxiety and depression is higher than pre-COVID rates. So, and when you see the survey data, you, you know and you see that Canadians are telling us that they need better access to care, and there's more of us that need access to care. I'm curious, is part of this, though, that we have better awareness of what mental illness is, that we see these numbers go up? It, it could be, and it, it wouldn't surprise me in the sense that 
as we talk about the destigmatization of mental illness and mental health issues, more and more of us are talking about the importance of our own mental health, but at the same time, we're also seeking more uh, access, better access to care. So part of it is we need to square the circle. If we're going to create the space that we can comfortably talk about our mental health and mental illnesses, we also need to make sure that we ensure Canadians have access to care. So your team at the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health recently polled more than 3,000 Canadians on how they rate mental health care in Canada. The poll had a margin of error of 1.7 percentage points and the results were weighted based on age, gender and region to be representative of the Canadian population. So tell us, what what did Canadians think of what's available to them? So we asked Canadians effectively to rate their own provincial governments in terms of access to care, uh, their confidence in the system, their overall satisfaction and effectiveness of mental health services. And we also asked them to rate the performance of the federal government. And when you look at the survey results, resoundingly, Canadians are giving their governments writ large a fail grade, an F. So clearly there is room for governments to up their game and do significantly more when it comes to improving publicly funded access to mental health care and substance use health services. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more about what you're advocating for, but what currently is available uh, for folks under the Canada Health Act? So the Canada Health Act is more narrowly defined in the context of its relationship to physicians and hospitals. So if you can see a family physician, if you can see a psychiatrist, if you can see a psychologist that is funded within a hospital or a social worker that's within a community health centre that is publicly funded, you have access. But again, it's very narrowly defined in terms of the scope of the legislation. What we have said as an alliance is that we need a companion piece of legislation that expands the notion of equating mental health and physical health. And we call it a Mental Health and Substance Use Healthcare Parity Act for All. This would be a new piece of federal legislation that would attach specific envelope of funding that would go to the provinces and territories for mental health and substance use health services. Is it difficult to get there if so many Canadians don't have access to a family doctor? I mean, often the route for for mental health care is through your family doctor first. Well, Uh, This is part of the dialogue, I think, that many governments and, quite frankly, the professions are having, mental health providers are having, in terms of how we organize ourselves to improve the overall delivery system within the public system. So, for example, we talk about primary health care reform. And to the medical profession's credit, they are talking a lot about improving and integrating more providers to work within family health teams. That is something that is achievable over the short term, but probably more importantly, it's also about building additional access in the sense of training more mental health care providers that can work with family physicians as much as we need to train additional family physicians. And you talk about these envelopes of money. How then would they be dispersed? Which which services would be offered and and how would that work in in your mind? Well, there's different mechanisms that could be used. One size wouldn't fit all. So if the money was to be transferred by the federal government, and this is again where the, the alliance has called on the federal government to live up to its promised Canada mental health transfer, which it has yet to deliver on. And they, Just before you go on, what is that? Tell me a little so bit So the first. Canada mental health transfer was uh, part of the Liberal government's promise uh, in the last election that they would provide $4.5 billion over five years and it would grow over time. To the credit of the other two major national political parties, the Conservatives and the NDP, they also had very robust 
uh, proposals in terms of policy as to what they wanted to do in this space as well. But what we haven't seen to date is the current government live up to the promise of actually delivering a specific envelope that would go to the provinces for for the area of improving access to mental health and substance use health. You will know that there's a 10-year accord in place and that there are bilateral agreements. But again, the monies are very modest in terms of what we have seen with the four that have been publicly released that are going to mental health and substance use health. That's why we have argued very strongly for a protected envelope of funding for mental health and substance use health. And that envelope could be attached to that new piece of legislation that we've been fighting for that equates mental health, substance use health with physical health. Mm-hmm. We did contact the office of Yara Sachs, the federal minister of mental health and addictions. Uh, the office sent a statement that read in part that, quote, since 2015, we have made historic investments to support the mental health of Canadians, including $5 billion starting in 2017 to the provinces and territories to increase the availability of mental health care, almost $600 million for a distinctions-based mental health and wellness strategy for Indigenous peoples, and $140 million to support veterans. And the statement goes on to say that the government has invested $25 billion over 10 years on four priorities, one of which is mental health and substance use, which I think you just touched on. But why is all of that not enough? In our view, it's a very good starting point. It's far from an end point. Governments really need to significantly up their game in terms of investing in mental health and substance use health. Based on the data that we have, roughly 5 to 7% of each provincial territorial health budget is focused on mental health and substance use health. CAMI, the alliance, recommends that that should be a minimum 12% of each provincial uh, health budget should be focused on mental health and substance use health, which is closer to where many G7 countries are in terms of investing dollars. And so how much in total do you think all of this would cost the federal government? It would cost more than what they're currently putting into place. At a minimum, what we would want to see the federal government is invest a, a minimum, again, roughly $5.2 billion to get to get the ball rolling in terms of beginning to improve funding and then subsequent uh, improvements in access. But it also means at the same time, this is, this is not just a federal government responsibility. It also means the provincial governments need to significantly invest and improve access to care. And saying that, it's important to recognize it's not like the provinces right now are standing still. There are a number of different elements, pilot projects, and pieces that they're putting in place. They are responding. Our view is they're not responding nearly fast enough and scaling up delivery models nearly so fast enough. Ottawa spending at least $5 billion, but, you know, and you know this as well as I do, the federal government is currently rolling out a publicly funded $13 billion dental program. It's also promised pharmacare legislation. That's estimated to cost a federal and provincial governments more than $11 billion dollars in the first year. So how how do we add to the load an extra $5 billion? That's a very good question and, and one that decision makers will ultimately make. But what we can tell you based on the survey data that's out there is that Canadians are saying to governments that investments in mental health and substance use health rank higher than dental care and pharmacare. So it's up to governments to reflect those respective priorities in terms of the public dollars that they invest in different programs. So you're suggesting we should put this mental health care program ahead of dental care? It's a higher priority in the context of the way that it cuts across and impacts every Canadian. Mental health has a significant impact, not only in terms of improving one's mental health, but think of it in terms of the social dividends and the economic dividends that it pays Canadians by just in terms of getting them, for example, back to work quicker, more effectively, more productively. We just have about a minute left, but I want to talk just briefly about that. What what are the dividends? If you invest up front for mental health, what do you get back in return? So 
<clears throat> there are studies out there, and one particularly in Ontario that was recently released that said, for every dollar that we invest in improving access to psychotherapies, publicly funded psychotherapies, we save $2. So the investment is in terms of we, if we get people treated quicker, improved health outcomes, hopefully back to a functional status, whatever, whatever that may be in terms of either being a worker, a sister, a mother, a family member. So there are these notions of if you put the dollars in upfront, there are different ways in which we accrue savings back to society. Okay, Glenn Brimacombe, we will leave it there. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Glenn Brimacombe is the Chair of Public Affairs for the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health and the Director of Policy and Public Affairs with the Canadian Psychological Association. And he was in studio with me in Ottawa. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Well, last fall, Nova Scotia took a step toward universal mental health care. The province amended legislation to allow for publicly funded services using private mental health practitioners. As part of this, the province recently rolled out a pilot program to test out ways to expand coverage. Jean Blackler is the president of the Nova Scotia chapter of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Jean, good morning. Good morning, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So tell us, what does your organization make of the Nova Scotia government's plan? We're thrilled with that. We are at the table to discuss how that plan should be rolled out. They're being very prudent and being um, careful to to have the right plan in order to uh, accommodate all the needs of Nova Scotians, regardless of economic status. Hmm. And, And describe how it will work, the pilot. Well, the current pilot that's being rolled out is with psychologists, and what they're doing is applying all of the current and um, incremental changes to uh, the MSI plan to determine whether or not it's it's feasible as it is or it needs more tweaking. And what they're doing is asking psychologists to assess, uh, help with the um with the backlog of assessment requirements for people with ADHD and those with autism. Um, so we're getting some feedback on how that's going to run out a rollout. And um, we're going to look forward to soon being able to do that with registered counseling therapists. Jean, tell me in Nova Scotia specifically what you're seeing with mental health. Why is it so important to find some kind of solution to help people who may not have access at this point? It is very difficult for people who do not have family doctors, as Glenn was saying. It's very, very difficult for people to self-navigate when they're in a mental health crisis. So what we want to do is have it at the grassroots level available to people who can walk in the door of a registered counseling therapist, see their office sign, and know that they're welcome and that econ- economic barriers are not going to be a challenge for them. When we look at Nova Scotians who are economically challenged, the last thing they need right now is to have to pay for their own mental health care. 
They need to put food on the table. They need uh, housing opportunities and they need transportation to get to and from work. So when you look at Maslow's theory of hierarchy, those are grassroots needs. And one of those needs that will impact their well-being is access to mental health. And what kind of feedback are you getting both from from participants and also those who are now billing the government, I would think, for, for the services they're providing? Well, I can't speak for psychologists because I'm a registered counseling therapist. However, we do know that there are many, many, many people that come into my office and offices like mine in private practice who are paying out of their pocket. And so we really need to look at who those people are that can pay because their insurance companies have um, they've maxed out their available funds out of those or arenas, and we see that the people who can afford it are still stretching their own dollars, and we need to understand that there are many, many, many people who are not even able to do that. So it's really important for the government to step up and provide that service, and they are starting to do that. We are seeing a huge amount of progress with the government. We are um, providing information to them on what expectations we are because they we have because they are asking us, you know, how can they guarantee quality services? And we're able to say, well, we have a Nova Scotia College of Counseling Therapists that regulate Nova. Uh, registered counseling therapists in Nova Scotia. And we're saying that we have a code of ethics and a standards of practice. And we're monitoring that. Our The college's goal is to protect the mm. public. And uh, we're able to do that. You know, in the fall, the Association of Psychologists of Nova Scotia told CBC there was actually little capacity among those in private practice to take on more work, even if they could bill the public system. How much capacity is there right now? For registered counseling therapists, if you um, recall a conversation with John Hubert, who is the registrar of the Nova Scotia College of Counseling Therapists, he has indicated that um, in the last three years, the number of registered counseling therapists has doubled. Um, it was 350 and it's now around 730. And we are turning out um, qualified uh, individuals from a number of universities within Nova Scotia and across Canada who reside in Nova Scotia to be able to um, pick up clients um, who are entering the system because we anticipate there are going to be a number of them. But we also have a succession plan. And so that regeneration of uh, counseling therapists available to serve the public is growing. And we're growing at an exponential rate. Do you think this pilot and, and expanding this pilot at some point is the silver bullet? I mean, is this is it the solution to, to what Nova Scotia and, and, and regions across Canada are struggling with? I think that it is an absolute necessity in order to make a difference. Is it the be-all and end-all? Perhaps not. We do have, like Glenn was saying, a number of other healthcare challenges going on at the same time. However, we need to start somewhere and we need to start thinking outside the box. And we need to start utilizing uh, an industry, as in counseling therapy, um, who is already connected to many providers within many social service and healthcare systems within Nova Scotia. We deal with a number of different departments already, so the foundation is already there. And now what they're doing is they're opening the door for another group of people to add service availability to Nova Scotians. And it is a great start. And Jean, can, can Nova Scotians afford it? 
Meaning, does the the provincial government have enough money? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, to 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 pay this pilot program to pay to, to pay for people to have access. So, if we look at the research that's recently been done, it's indicative of the fact that if you enter the system early and get early intervention, the likelihood of a catastrophic event occurring at a later time which would probably take more resources to resolve, in five years we'll be able to do an assessment to determine whether or not early intervention and greater access earlier on will reduce the costs in other social systems. Okay, Jean, we will leave it there. Thank you for making time for us this morning. I appreciate your time, Rebecca. Thank you. Jean Blackler is the president of the Nova Scotia chapter of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Now over to you. What's your perspective on universal mental health care in Canada? How have you or your family been affected by the cost of mental health care? Write to us at thecurrent at cbc.ca. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.